Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, Cavalier fans. It is I, your lifelong Cavalier host of this Cavs podcast of the people, the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you for joining me. Let's waste no time, shall we? I'm going to fire off the open on my soundboard, which has been performing like shit as of late. I restarted my computer. Let's hope this thing doesn't skip. But if you want to skip through this open, I believe it's approximately 20 seconds. an emergency episode Come in here, it's an emergency. of the Fear the Fro podcast. Well, I fucked that up. That wasn't actually on the soundboard. That wasn't the, the real open. That was the emergency open. See, I have it in the till in case there's some dramatic movement this week uh, heading up to the trade deadline, but that wasn't what I meant to play. Regardless, I'm not going to subject you to another open. Let's pretend that my 48-hour erection is in fact an emergency because ever since Evan Mobley splashed three triples on three attempts on Saturday, I've been fully torqued ever since. So let's talk about the winning, shall we? Six in a row, 14 of 15, and now the Cavaliers are in sole possession of second place in the Eastern Conference. It came just too late as Doc Rivers, fresh from the broadcast booth, took charge of the Milwaukee Bucks, led them to a brilliant 1-2 and two record over three games, and that sample of work was enough to select him to lead the Eastern Conference All-Star. Certainly not a blind spot. If Kiefer Sutherland can go from the Housing and Urban Development Secretary to the President of the United States, who am I to question the policies of who should assume certain roles, you know? I think they should let Adrian Griffin coach it. Now, the game is meaningless. You might get a handful of competitive minutes towards the end of that thing if you're lucky. But you could have an entire game of extreme awkwardness. And what would be better than that? In fact, not only should Adrian Griffin come back, let David Black coach the Western Conference. Let's make the whole thing like a graduation where they only give you two tickets so the mom and dad that are divorced have to sit next to one another despite the fact that the dad banged his secretary. Uh, uh. Uh. Now, if you're asking yourself, why do you have Colin Cowherd making sex noises? Better question. Why don't you? Uh. We're not alone in feeling wronged by the All-Star selections. The Kings got hosed twice. De'Aaron Fox, DeMontis Sabonis, neither of them were included. Here's a fun stat for you. Uh, for all of our struggles against the Kings, having lost the three previous games, DeMontis Sabonis has beaten Anthony Davis every single game of his career. He is 8-0. Not just with the Kings. That includes the Thunder, the Pacers. The man has literally never lost to Anthony Davis, and he has to watch him go to the All-Star game while he, with 32 double-doubles, second only to Jerry Lucas in Kings history, with 15 triple-doubles, he will be staying home. For as much as we feel like we got fucked, I know a lot of you wanted to see Jared Allen on. I know a lot of you are still holding out hope that they will select him as an All-Star replacement when Randall and Embiid are officially, you know, removed. But I wouldn't hold out hope. I This is my prediction. I hate this man, but I think Scotty Barnes is the first call-up. And I think Trey Young is the second call-up. And I think the third isn't even Jared Allen. I would assume it's going to be Chris Stapps Porzingis. I would put Jared Allen around fourth overall. He definitely has a better case than Derek White. I don't care what the Boston podcast people try to tell you. And then Miles Turner, despite being worse than Jared Allen statistically, the fact the game's in Indianapolis, it would not shock me. Okay? It would not shock me at all. But the point is, as I say to my wife all the time when she looks at me with just complete disappointment as to the choices that she's made with her life, I tell her it could always be worse. If they don't recognize the greatness that is Sammy Snipes, the Mormon marksman, Sam Merrill, another three triples tonight, well, then they don't deserve him. 
If you can't have our shooter at his best, you can't have what some people earlier this season would have had you believe is the worst coach in the history of the NBA. My, 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 how storylines have changed. But a six-game winning streak is not the time to turn ourselves on each other. Our hate should be propelled outwards towards the people who told you that this Cavaliers core, largely the same as last season, simply hadn't addressed the issues that plagued it. Let me ask you this. At the end of tonight's game, a 26-point victory over a team that has plagued us in the past. Not the best team in the Western Conference, but a very difficult matchup for us. Did you care that Darius Garland only had 11 points? Did you care that he took the sixth most shots on the team? I, for one, didn't. He is falling in line in terms of moving the ball and getting everybody involved. And I will take a win where seven guys score in double figures and where I feel good about both the starting unit and the bench unit. The bench unit in the first half, we scored 74 points, just an obscene half of Cavaliers offensive basketball. And most of that was due to just an insane shooting display. We tied a season high for three-pointers made in a game. Our previous high, 23 against the Utah Jazz, we equaled that tonight. But just as impressively, this Cavaliers squad, of its 44 bench points, 35 came in the first half. Wade, Okoro, Levert, Merrill, they were 6-for-9 from outside the arc, and basically from the beginning of the second quarter on, the Cavaliers opened the lead more and more. There wasn't a drastic... I mean, we had a 12-0 run. The Cavs did at one point in the game. They did not give this Kings team, a team that plays with pace, a team that can hit a lot of three-pointers, a chance to cut the lead. For once... Despite playing at a blistering pace, a 74-point first half, I felt like the Cavaliers were completely comfortable. Sam Merrill jumped a passing lane from De'Aaron Fox, who lost his shoe, took it down the court, and buried a three in transition. Max Struess, multiple times, grand theft, Max Zerato. He stole the ball from DeMontis Sabonis twice on rebounds that one of the strongest players in the NBA could not secure. Max stripped him, hit a reverse layup, then later in the game did the same thing, but instead retreated to the corner three and buried that. Max in the third quarter was super max. 11 points in the third quarter, including three triples, and a huge chunk of those came right out of the locker room. He got a fast start. Evan Mobley was finding him with passes. Now, we already touched on how close Evan Mobley was to putting up a triple-double. Seven assists is Evan Mobley's highest assist outing this season, but also, career-wise, he'd done it twice in 2022 against the Jazz and against the Pacers, both on the road. This is the most assists he's ever recorded in a home game for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Spencer Davies, friend of the podcast, my dear friend Spin, he put a question to JB in the post game about what he's been seeing in regards to how Mobley's been playing offense these past two games. I'm going to play you that right now. When he's in the triple threat position, what are you kind of looking for, depending on what defensive matchup he has on him? Because, I mean, he the last couple games he's been in attack mode in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's, he's hard to guard with his size, skill, and length. You know, he can put the ball on the floor, and in one bounce, he's at the rim. Um, you know, at the same time, he's good enough once he puts the ball on the floor to see the defense and then make the whatever the right next play is. Uh, so, again, as, as long as he's going forward, uh, good things are going to happen. And, you know, that's what we want. And, again, he's just going to continue to do it. His guys are going to get more used to playing with him again. Uh, and it's going to make us that much more effective. Evan Mobley over these past two games has been absolutely unreal. First, he took on a guy 
the most touted prospect since LeBron James, and hung a quiet 28-10 and 10 on him, not to mention shooting 73% from the field. Now tonight, not nearly as efficient with his shooting. Missed plenty of shots, missed his only three-point attempt. Wasn't the perfect three-for-three three that he gave us on Saturday, but we got to see the exact opposite archetype-wise from a Wemby, and Evan Mobley succeeded against both in different ways. 11-14-7 against one of the most physical bigs. He went from an extremely long big to DeMontis Sabonis. And while much of Evan's minutes tonight were not actually against Sabonis, that was more of the Jarrett Allen matchup, he still played minutes with Allen, played minutes with him off the floor. AC at one point during the game said, you know, the difference is Evan is playing far more aggressive here, which is blatantly obvious these past two games. Now, it's yet to see if this sustains. It almost feels like here initially... He's made it a point to try to answer some of the critics that popped up due to Jared Allen's just otherworldly run while he was down with the injury. It is encouraging that I feel like Evan's been extremely aggressive and it hasn't come at the expense of Jared Allen. If anything, it's kind of come at the expense of shots for Darius Garland. But I don't care who's the one putting the ball in the basket. I care about the quality of looks. Spin Davies was not the only one to ask a question during the press conference. I actually was in attendance tonight, and I spoke to Evan Mobley about Tim Bontemps' criticism. He had the following to say. Evan, Bob Schmidt, Fear the Fro. I was just wondering if you had heard Tim Bontemps' comments on, um, well, your lack of development and how expendable you are, bad at the center, etc. Yeah, I heard what that dude said. And, um, yeah, I mean, people can think whatever. Do I actually believe he's watching us nightly? No. But ultimately, that sack of shit can just eat a big old bag of dicks. Num, num, num. <gasps> Evan. That's what I said to him when I was alone with him. No credential media members were around. I just, I asked him that in private. People give me exclusives with Evan all the time. So if if you can't handle the truth as seen through the eyes of not deep fake Evan Mobley, then I'm sorry. You're not ready for the real talk that the Fear the Fro podcast delivers. And coincidentally enough, right after Evan and I talked, I turned around and who was standing right there? namesake of the podcast, Jared Allen. We chest pumped, we dick bumped, and then I put this question to him. Jared, hi, Bob Schmidt, Fear the Fro. I was just wondering if you happen to catch wind of uh, Tim Bontemps' criticisms of Evan Mobley and if you had any thoughts. Tim is just a miserable human being. He has a very punchable face, very punchable. And I don't think that guy would be happy, even if he was asked that question in the middle of winning the fucking lottery. If there was ever a guy who needed to get hit by a van full of dildos, it ain't Draymond. Evan deserves better. And Zach Lowe, Zach should be ashamed for platforming that, well, that giant pile of foreskins, really. Now, I know I spent the better part of August telling all you people who are ripping Jared Allen for his lights too bright comment that you're monsters and that he's a sweet man and that you should be ashamed of yourself for driving him off social media. But I think what I realized in my completely confidential one-on-one is that he has an edge underneath the surface, not to mention a way with words. It's almost like someone wrote something extremely mean-spirited toward Tim Bontemps and asked Jared Allen to recite it for them. But, I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? I get it. Jared Allen seems like a sweetie pie. He's giving fist bumps to Serena Williams. He's waving at the crowd. He's getting, uh, you know, gamer gifts from Carter Rodriguez at Media Day. But deep down, under the surface, he's no different than you or I. He's fantasizing about enemies of the pod being struck by vans full of dildos. Enemy, 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 enemy of the pod. Fuck!
sometimes great minds think alike. And guys who have no history of saying people should be hit by dildos happen to suggest it. And maybe it appeared in a video of mine one time. Certainly nothing nefarious is afoot. Maybe Jared Allen just saw me wandering around with unlimited access in a Cavaliers team facility and said to himself, hey, this guy looks like he has a huge hog. I should give him an exclusive. And then during that, showed us his true self. Maybe that's what happened. Now, have you noticed, Cavalier Faithful, that the Donovan Mitchell for MVP campaign is gaining steam on a national level? Now, here amongst us... We've been saying he needs to get more praise for the last month or so. Also, the Jared Allen All-Star campaign has existed here. But I'm talking about names outside of our sphere. And right now, when you hear the phrase, I think blah, blah, blah should be in the conversation, what that means is, I don't want to put my name on him, but I want credit for recognizing what's going on here. And that is what we're starting to hear on a national level, it, which is a perfectly acceptable place to be. Anybody saying Donovan Mitchell is going to win MVP is delusional at the moment. However... I do think he's climbed significantly. Basketball reference would have you believe that DeMontis Sabonis has the fifth best case for MVP. I suspect when that gets updated, he might start to tick down just slightly. Donovan Mitchell is clumped amongst two guys worthy candidates themselves, Kawhi Leonard and Jalen Brunson. We already have spoken at length about the Clippers in the last week and anybody who's a Cavs fan and says they aren't paying attention to what the Knicks are doing is lying. Or they're just so traumatized from last year that they've repressed it like an uncle molesting you and they just try to pay no attention to it. Uh, uh, uh. Now, nearly everyone in consideration is on a team that has eclipsed the 30-win mark. To me, that's kind of the bottom threshold. I guess it's why I'm not supremely worried about a DeMontis Sabonis or a Tyrese Halliburton or even a Luka Doncic. I think over the course of the season, those guys will start to fade as the cases for their individual teams perhaps slide. Now with the Kings, because of the strength of the Western Conference this year, despite having a similar record at this point in the season, instead of being third in the West, they're fifth in the West. Donovan Mitchell, Kawhi Leonard, Jalen Brunson, Jason Tatum, I would say all those guys occupy a similar space on a tier below your Jokic, your Shea, your Giannis. I think Jokic and Shea are running away with it. Then I would say the next tier below is Giannis and Luka. And then after that, I think you could make the argument that Tatum, Mitchell, Kawhi Leonard, Jalen Brunson, they all have very strong cases. And as the Cavaliers' team success continues, Donovan Mitchell will start to have the edge in these conversations with guys who at least statistically are as equals. Now, Kawhi and Jalen, they both have a significant efficiency advantage over Donovan. I had a long conversation with Adam Oslin, my Clippers guest from a week ago, about who's more deserving. I asked him to make the case against Donovan Mitchell, and most of his case relied on on-off metrics of Kawhi Leonard and the fact that he is supremely efficient. And what I said to him then, which I feel is generally just true, is that while I agree that stuff's important, the people who decide MVP tend to give a nod to counting stats first, and then they look to analytics, team record, two-way play, more in a tiebreaker capacity. I think you could order Kawhi, Jalen, Donovan, any way you want. Right now, I would say Donovan's at the top of the team performance chart, so Donovan should get the nod. But hopefully, as this second half of the season goes along, if the Cavaliers put together a dominant stretch here and firmly entrench themselves in the two seed, 
I think there is a path for Donovan to have a top five finish for MVP. In order for that to happen, he would have to be viewed as a better candidate than one of these three guys, Giannis, Luka, Jason Tatum. Right now, that seems unlikely. A lot can change. We are setting up a situation here where if the Cavaliers get to the two seed, if they're able to prevail over the seven, which I don't want to speak in absolutes because I've already written off the Sixers for dead. I stopped concerning myself with them, assuming that Joel Embiid will not be back by the playoffs. But my God, if that happens, to have to go through the Sixers with Joel Embiid and then get a second round, which is going to be another rock fight with an even more defensively opposing New York Knicks team now with Ananobi in the fold. I want nothing to do with that. And at the same time, I want everything to do with that. This is the same thing I said before the guys came back from the injuries. What we need is a sample of data to make educated decisions on. Now, I've been watching Lessons in Chemistry with my wife, which is a show basically about the patriarchy suppressing the uh, chemistry talents of an actress. I forget what her name Elizabeth Zott. That's the character's name. It's on Apple TV, by the way. Uh, yeah, my wife has roped me into two shows right now, which are just about monstrous men who do horrible things to women. The first show was called Bad Sisters, and it's about just a shitty husband. I'm cutting in here to tell you to earmuffs it or skip 30 seconds because I did the thing that I hate, which is giving you a spoiler with no warning. So I'm just going to lay out for one second to give you a chance to skip before I return to spoiling this show for you in three, two, one. Who treats his wife so bad that all of her sisters, they conspire to kill the guy. And he's a fucking monster. And then in this Lessons of Chemistry show... Uh, the reason I bring this up is because if we were to face off against the Knicks again, we would have a control variable. The Knicks are essentially the same team, maybe even a better version. We would be comparing apples to apples. Did this team, which out-schemed us, which out-executed us, did the plan that we put in place after that bear fruit? Are we better? Are we more prepared? Now, if we lost, of course, it would be crushing. But if we won, how great would that feel? Not to mention, I'm pretty sure that that would be against the rooting interests of Tim Bontemps and Nick Ferdell, who I realize are journalists, so they'll say, I don't have rooting interests, but listen to a podcast that they appear on and tell me that you believe that. This Cavalier team, the vibes are immaculate. The winning is incredible, and the individual play and team play tonight is, is putting to rest a lot of the fears all of us had, myself included, about, oh God, what if this thing derails when Darius Garland comes back? And say whatever you want about Darius Garland in these first few games. They've been far from perfect, but tonight, I don't think you can really take issue with the decisions he made in regards to moving the basketball and the team ball that he played. Now, with a 14-1 and record, it should be no surprise to you that the Cavaliers have the best net rating in the league over that stretch of time. An incredible defensive rating that would put them first in the entire NBA, outpacing the Knicks and the Timberwolves. Offensively, though, the Cavaliers would be fourth in the NBA over this past 15 games. So things are trending up. And I said before these last two games, as the Cavaliers came out of that big Clippers win, that I could see them winning five of the seven games that lead up to the All-Star break. One of those games that I did not count as a win was this Kings one. So to come away with a victory tonight. Oh, and the other thing that substantially changed is Joel Embiid. And his injury means that when the Cavaliers host the Philadelphia 76ers after this three-game road stretch that we have ahead of us now, 
That will be against a much worse team. It's totally plausible the Cavaliers could run the slate here. We shouldn't expect there to not be any letdowns. But if we went 4-1 and one against the Wizards, the Nets, the Bulls, the Raptors, the Sixers, that would be huge. Now, there's more to this podcast coming up. I recorded this next section before the Kings game. There's a long discussion about stuff leading up to the trade deadline. There is a long discussion about Zach Collins and Donovan Mitchell, and there is a big chunk that is dedicated to an audio mailbag. Let's get to that. More happened over the weekend. I really, if I was a good podcaster, I would have got on over at some time, Sunday, even early Monday morning, and put up a podcast reacting to what was one of the feel-good wins of the season against the Spurs. However, what I wanted to do is I wanted to just unload the clip on you here because this is an odd week. For me, I will be in the air as of Wednesday to head to Super Bowl responsibilities on the West Coast. And uh, as I do that, it will keep me probably from podcasting Wednesday night following the conclusion of the game. I may do a trade deadline episode. Uh, I will have a mic, obviously, and all my equipment with me. Uh, But it's really kind of going to be dependent on if the Cavaliers do anything. But that brings me to the perfect opportunity to hit the Cavalier mailbag. So let's do it. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Okay, today's mailbag. Hey, Bob, this is Scott from Melbourne, Australia, also known as uh, Delhi Country. Scott, Delhi Country. How do you prefer to be labeled? I'm going to go with Scott here. What is your question, sir? Massive fan of the show. I listen to it every, every episode. I left that in. My question is, with the upcoming... upcoming uh, trade deadline, should the Cavs look at someone like a Rose O'Neal for someone like a Ty Jerome and a late second round pick just to bolster our wing or do we hold fast and stay with who we've got because we're running a 10-man rotation at the moment and it's going to be harder to add another person than the 11th man. There's also rumours of the Cavs looking at getting uh, an experienced point guard, a veteran point guard. The obvious choice would be Kyle Lowry, but do we actually need a veteran point guard with Donovan and Darius playing at the moment? Love the pod. Keep it up. Cheers, mate. Cheers to you, Scott. Okay, so let's address this in two parts. I want to talk first a little bit about Royce O'Neal here. Uh, I believe that because of what we have witnessed, I have arrived at a stance on trades that could be as concisely summarized as follows. There is the sure, why not, that doesn't cost us anything trade proposals, of which I think the suggestion you made falls into. And then there is the other camp of What are you doing? Those guys are too valuable to move. Why are you making trades for trade sakes? I'll address that too, even though, Scott, you're not a part of that. You're just a launching point into it. Let's stick to this Royce O'Neal subject, okay? I like Royce O'Neal. Sure. Here's my reservations. Uh, If... As far as what we send out, would I send out Ty Jerome and Damian Jones together? Fuck it. Why not? I have no issue with that. I guess maybe in the short term, we'd be a little thin 
uh, in the front court, assuming that if anything happened to Mobley or Jared Allen, without Tristan Thompson, we would not have another true center on the roster. And the suggestion that Pete Nance or Isaiah Mobley would be more than a warm body at this point, I don't really think that would be the case. But on the surface level, what I like about what you suggested is I do not care what happens to Ty Jerome, in large part because I think Craig Porter Jr. has proven he is capable of playing point guard minutes if we find ourselves in a situation where we can actually give him some. Karis LeVert, anybody who says he hasn't been impressive this season, they might have hated Karis LeVert before the conversation even began. To have two serviceable backups, which I believe we do in Karis LeVert and Craig Porter Jr., I wouldn't be remiss to trade a not-playing-at-all Ty Jerome. I'm assuming in that proposal you'd have to give a second-round pick or maybe two second-round picks regardless. That part to me is the part where I think the Cavaliers have to think about the worth of what they're doing. Royce O'Neal is a fine player, but his limitations are as follows. He's six foot five. Um, so he's another guy who plays above his height, similar to an Isaac Okoro, or I think you could even say a Max Struess, a guy who maybe isn't that big physically, but is proven to be relatively capable guarding above his size. And with Royce O'Neal, historically, he's a fairly accurate three-point shooter who's put up a higher volume than a Dean Wade. But Dean Wade this year, to me, does something that Royce O'Neal does at a cheaper price point and already is sitting in that role. You bring in a Royce O'Neal and you're having to carve out minutes against a Dean Wade and a George Yang. Now, maybe you think he's such a significant upgrade over those two guys that you would roll him out there. I would argue the following. I think he's a significant upgrade defensively over George Yang. From a shooting perspective, I would trust Yang more. As far as Dean Wade goes, I look at them almost parallel at this point. And maybe there's some homer in me. But for Dean Wade to give you four extra inches, to be shooting nearly 40% from outside the arc, I think really the only trade-off there is that Royce is putting up a slightly bigger volume. But here's the second part of this commentary that I think is relevant. What is your intention for bringing in Royce O'Neal? As an unrestricted free agent this summer, would you want to make that trade and risk that he just walks away? Because that's entirely possible. Now, if the Cavs know something we don't, and because of his relationship with Donovan Mitchell and Yang as guys that he played with in Utah, maybe they would be willing to give up a second-round pick in those movable, you know, Ty Jerome, Damian Jones-level contracts just to get him into the system so that they would have an advantage in re-signing him this summer. Well, and certainly that's something to consider, even if he doesn't have a carved-out rotation spot now, because things could change between now and the summer. Some bodies could move. Some could be consolidated over the summer. We just don't know. But what I would say to that is that type of proposal and other proposals built around bringing in a productive player, if that player would in fact warrant minutes in our rotation, I wouldn't bat an eye to move a Ty Jerome or even a Damian Jones at this point. And I say that having been impressed with Damian Jones's last real outing when we took on the Grizzlies there. But it is worth pointing out that those two, they would not get it done alone. And that's where things get complicated because Royce O'Neal makes $9.5 million. The, the salaries of those two combined is basically $5 million. There would need to be additional pieces. And whether that means throwing in a Tristan Thompson or, God forbid, throwing Yang in. And then at that point, I become a little less eager 
Yeah, I mean, I know there's plenty of people who would ditch Yang in a second for Royce O'Neal. But to me, you have three years of cost control, George Yang, at $8 million a season versus $9.5 million for this half of a season for Royce O'Neal, and then no certainty as to what happens after that. Quite frankly, I don't think he's a significant enough step up in the rotation that I am really all that invested one way or another. I have more belief in Dean Wade than that. And quite frankly, I think Yang at moments is going to be serving spot minutes when we're fully healthy. So I don't have any confidence that Royce O'Neal is so much significantly better than Dean Wade. Whether you agree with me or not on the Wade versus Royce thing, I'm not so confident that he's a vast improvement that I want to give up a piece and picks just to make that happen for what may only be a half a season. That's where I land on that. Let's use that as a launch point for the second group. Now, I said that's one view on trades. The second is we have played so well over this stretch in January and our bench depth has improved so vastly that I'm at a point where people who are still constructing trades with a Dean Wade or an Isaac Okoro and to a lesser degree a George Nyan, you just need to shut it down. And I wanted to speak specifically to a conversation that has arisen on Cavs Twitter, on Cavs Reddit, just social media in general. It emanates from an article on Hoops Hype by Mike Scotto. He wrote about interest in Isaac Okoro. Now, I'm going to read you the quote exactly so that you know what I'm responding to. His article said the following. One Cavalier to monitor ahead of Thursday's trade deadline is number five former pick Isaac Okoro. The six foot five wing is eligible for an $11.8 million qualifying offer this summer, which would make him a restricted free agent. One general manager who spoke with Hoops Hype already believes Okoro can get around $14 million annually, which would be more than the full non pack taxpayer mid level exception. The Cavaliers now have to consider their appetite for going into the tax, et cetera, et cetera. You, you got the, the critical part there. The teams they mentioned as being ones who would monitor Okoro's availability were the Knicks, the Hawks, the Pacers, the Suns, and the Bucks. Here's the thing that's relevant, though. For all of you Isaac Okoro lovers who are panicking at just the idea that his name is being mentioned in trade talks, none of those five teams I mentioned, there's a reason they're talked about as being interested because they have no realistic avenue to obtain Isaac Okoro except through a trade which requires our participation. Their caps are all fucked, with the sole exception being the Pacers. And the Pacers cap is about to be fucked because they're about to have to retain Pascal Siakam. If they parted ways with Siakam and Buddy Heald and Obi Toppin, then yeah, they could be a serious risk. They would have the necessary cap space to give Isaac a godfather offer and lure him away from us. But let's be real for a moment, okay? Two of these five teams, the Suns and the Bucks, they are so fucked. They're two of the four highest payrolls in the league. He very well may garner offers, but this is the part that's great, Cavs fans. In order for a team to say, well, we think you're worth $15 million a year, just like we had to figure out how to make the finances work, with a Max Struess to lure him away from the heat by giving him an offer above the mid-level exception, other teams would have to do the same for Isaac Okoro. Here's the great thing about the current construction of restricted free agency and this new CBA. It absolutely bones restricted free agents. You either get a max offer basically now, or you're all clumped in that same range of 10 to $20 million. Inside that range, you decide who's worth what. There are only seven teams that are going to have in excess of $20 million of cap space. I think you could make the argument that five of them are fucking horrible. 
and are not going to spend a huge chunk of money just to get an Isaac Okoro, who I'm sorry, Detroit, Charlotte, Utah, Toronto, San Antonio, are they going to make the headliner of their unrestricted free agency spending a godfather offer sheet to Isaac Okoro? Doubtful. Just look back to when Indiana made that insane offer to DeAndre Ayton. They gave him a full max because they wanted to force the Phoenix Suns to have to walk away and just accept that they weren't willing to pay that. And what did the Suns do? Put up against the idea of not being able to recoup anything, they agreed to that insane overpay. Do you think for a second that the Cavaliers would blink at having to match a full mid-level offer to Isaac Okoro, $12.5 million a season? I would say no. No, they wouldn't. It's only when somebody can have the discipline and the financial foresight to carve out a huge amount of cap space to really put a difficult decision in front of us, a bad contract value, that the Cavaliers would have to consider walking away. And those simply are probably not going to exist. The teams that are out there are not desirable, and Isaac Okoro isn't good enough to justify throwing a massive contract at. He's a great, great support role player. But I don't think anybody's sitting here looking at him and saying, okay, let's make him one of the top three, top four highest paid players on our roster. No, not going to happen. No real risk of that. So if you're unhappy with this roster, I don't know what to tell you. We're fucking winning. I just hope people, instead of just desperately trying to upgrade pieces, will appreciate how much better we are depth-wise and bench-wise than we were last year. Relative unknown finds in Sam Merrill and Craig Porter Jr. to turn what was very little cap space into both Struess and Yang. You get a healthier Dean Wade. You get a better Dean Wade. You get a better Isaac Okoro. For one summer, this was incredible work by the front office. I'm not saying our bench is perfect, but Christ, last year, not only were we thin, I mean, you had a guy who JB conceivably hated in Jetty Osmond being forced to be one of our top two bench guys in the postseason. Now, Levert was one of the high points of that series, and we still got our asses kicked. But inability to appreciate our newfound depth, I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason why Tim Bontemps is an enemy of the pod. And now quite publicly, I declare you an enemy. You just became an enemy of the pod. Oh, no. It's because... This New York-based NBA analyst, he never qualifies any of his criticisms. He could make, just listen to these comments. I mean, to me, Evan Mobley's been one of the more disappointing players in the league. He has not improved on offense at all. Not improved on offense at all. I actually had assholes because, of course, after Evan Mobley murdered Victor Wembanyama in the San Antonio Spurs, I danced all over the grave of that stupid fucking take. And you were right there with me. Cavalier faithful. Thank you to everybody who follows at Fear the Fro Pod on Twitter. But like anything that's on the internet, it's a cesspool. And it's for as many people as who actually are Cavs fans and want them to succeed, there'll be people who make their way into the comments who just who just want to shit in your cereal. And here, let me read you an example. And this, I'm not singling anyone out. I won't even mention their handle, but it's an illustration of uh, an issue that I have. So I post this stupid western-themed sizzle reel of Evan Mobley making three three-pointers. And the audio over top of it is Tim Bontemps saying Evan Mobley has not improved at all offensively. He has not improved on offense at all? Then you go to the comments and you'll find gems like this. Now this, don't troll this guy. Just let it sit. But this is indicative of the type of, you know, I'm smarter than everyone else. 
everything is doomed. Why won't you accept my worldview of the doom type of responses that you'll get? It said this. Take is still valid. Just because Mobley had one game where he hit three threes doesn't mean his offense has improved. Now, I hope I don't need to say this to you um, when I post a video where I have gunshots synced up to jumpers going in. But that video was meant to illustrate how stupidly over-the-top Tim Bontemp's take was by me being equally absurd. Nobody believes Evan Mobley has become the world's best marksman. Hitting three of them in that night against the Spurs, that brought his season total up to five. So the fact that he made more three-pointers in one night than the whole season, no, I'm not sitting out here saying he's become Sam Merrill when he was down with the injury. If you want to hitch your wagon to this statement, he has not improved on offense at all. And this statement, if you're a non-shooting four, which is what Evan Mobley is, that's probably the least valuable player in the league. And your interpretation of those is... Take is still valid. Well, then my assessment of you is the same as my assessment of Draymond Green. You are trash. That's right. You're trash. Your ability to understand good faith and bad faith arguments are trash. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure if you're a Cavalier fan. And believe me, I understand the irony of me saying you're too hateful when I'm talking about the enemy of the pod, Tim Bontemps. And now quite publicly, I declare you an enemy. You just became an enemy of the pod. Oh, no. But the difference is, I'm hating on Bontemps with a jingle. I put some effort into it. You typed 140 characters shitting on Mobley's development. If you want to do it with some pizzazz, well, then I'll give you a pass. But until that point, you're no better than that thug, Zach Collins. Transition! It was a dirty-ass play. Um, you know, the kid was upset. Um, at a play that happened before, and he retaliated, which was bullshit on his part. Um, and Donovan, you know, did what Donovan does. He stood up for himself. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, I understand the rule, but if a guy takes a cheap shot on you, uh, again, you should be able to protect yourself. Um, but that was a dirty-ass play. Good on JB for the tough talk. And the fact he threw in some casual profanity certainly probably got more eyeballs on it. And I don't think that that's dissimilar to what we saw from Donovan Mitchell here. That's three times now. Donovan Mitchell seems like a pretty affable guy. It seems like most of his opponents around the league like him. But every single time somebody goes beyond the bounds of basketball plays, we've seen it three times now. Dylan Brooks hits him in the dick. He shoves him. Draymond Green pushes him in the back on a transition runout. He runs him down and shoves him. And then this act, the intentional elbow-to-the-face screen that Zach Collins threw as retribution, admittedly so. He copped to it in the post-game press conference, not press conference, but locker room interview he conducted. Every time, Donovan Mitchell has taken it into his own hands to self-police. And I don't think it's a coincidence that all the times that somebody has managed to get under the skin of Donovan Mitchell, we have won all those games. I think he's very aware of when he can get away with it and when he can't. So I'm not even upset he got ejected because I do think there is something worthwhile. If he's willing to pay the fines, if he's willing to get tossed, putting a spotlight on dirty non-basketball players like Draymond, Dylan Brooks, and Zach Collins, I think it has value. Because hopefully when we see those guys in the future, Russ will at least be paying a little bit better of attention. And I think it's fair to ask yourself, with Draymond specifically, if that incident hadn't happened, would the punishment 
with the Draymond Rudy Gobert incident that happened just days after, would it have been as severe? I think as much as this sounds ridiculous, the vigilante behavior of Donovan Mitchell taking it upon himself to shine a spotlight on the scumbags in the league, it is not only worthwhile for me as a Cavalier fan, but he's doing a service to the league. So in conclusion, fuck off, Zach Collins. I will not give you the honor of being enemy of the pod because you will not be spoken of again this season since we've played the Spurs twice. It'd be stupid. There'd be no reason to bring you up. You certainly aren't going to make an impact on the court, so I can't imagine that you will be discussed again anytime soon. Interesting side note. I wanted to look up how much Zach Collins had uh, spent in suspensions. I actually was just curious. Who's been fined the most this season for you know, bullshit on-court behavior. But what I failed to consider is that the tabulations are generally kept just on a cumulative basis. They also include suspensions and fines for stuff that happened off the court. And that's where things got a little cloudy. But there was a Cleveland Cavalier amongst the list, our very own Tristan Thompson, coming in fourth place in terms of money lost due to suspensions and fines performance-enhancing drug suspension. However, I'm willing to overlook it. Look, he was trying to become a brick shit house to help all of us. And if he wants to hurt himself to do it, who am I to criticize, really? His company is horrible, though. First place, John Morant, who missed the first 25 games of the year. Second place, in a distant second at that, Draymond Green, who's missed several games on account of his bestie relationship with Adam Silver, his cry fest with uh, Steve Kerr, and just general dick baggery, and then third place, Miles Bridges, another man in trade rumors. So amongst that top five, fifth place, by the way, Devontae Graham, who had a DWI in the offseason, amongst those top five, I would say that Tristan Thompson is the best citizen of all of them. Thank you, Cavalier fans. Thank you, Fear the Fro listeners. You have really hit the reviews hard, and I am grateful. We are sitting just below the 90 threshold on Spotify. When we hit 100 five-star reviews, I plan to incentivize all of you who are devoted listeners. I will plant something within one of the podcasts. It will be, I don't know, some sort of keyword or something. And for those of you who email bob at fropod.com with said keyword, when we hit that that benchmark, I'm just going to give money to somebody. I don't know how much. Listen, it's not going to be a lot. I'm not making any money off of this thing, but I'll do some gesture to uh, show my gratitude to all of you who have made this your Cavalier podcast of choice. So we will be back, as I alluded to. It'll be probably towards the latter half of this week. But till then, thank you. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out fropod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here. Uh, By the way, it's cavspod.com.